At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Kodiak Shack podcast. I have Alex and James from Shock Tech, and they're going to talk to us about REAP and uh, some other programs that they have, maybe working with uh, NASA, some astronauts, stuff like that. But uh, again, we have uh, some sponsors coming out, so thank you for that. And then also, if you want to donate, that'll be in the show notes. And now, a word from our sponsor. Crowdbotics Defense is a data analytics software company serving the United States Air Force. They make it easy for active duty servicemen and women to turn their ideas into products and tag team DOD adoption. If you or someone you know has an idea for how tech can speed up your team, increase efficiency, or make your life easier, reach out to Crowdbotics Defense to talk it through. Crowdbotics Defense will help you define your project scope, timeline, and cost, and work with you to secure the budget you need to build it. Any product built and adopted by DOD will be credited to you as a collaborator. Reach out to Julian at crowdbotics.com for help. That's Julian, J-U-L-I-A-N at crowdbotics, C-R-O-W-D-B-O-T-I-C-S.com. Also, there will be a link in the show notes. Everybody I talk to in the DOD sees inefficiencies that could be streamlined or rectified with the hard work of software engineers and people in the United States Air Force. So work with Crowdbotics Defense to make a product that you are proud of and you're happy to work with. Uh, But we'll get right into it with uh, Alex and James. So thank you for being here today and uh, go ahead and tell us about yourself. Go ahead, James. You got it. Uh, my name is James Rawls, so I lead the research engineering and development department at Shock Tech. Uh, I have a bachelor's degree in physics, math, and chemistry, and then I have a PhD in, in physics uh, from West Virginia University. The way that I sort of came into, um, at least into Shock Tech, I was working at an SBIR company uh, previously, and so we, I got a call from somebody saying, hey, we need people to help us with writing proposals, doing SBIR projects, getting these uh, out and running. Um, when I came to Shock Tech, it was um, very different from the previous SBIR company that I, that I worked for, whereas here they really do a lot of production stuff. So we do a lot of manufacturing production in-house, um, which is uh, contrary to quite a few of the, of the other SBIR companies that I've seen. So. Nice. 
So, uh, <clears throat> Alex Faust, I uh, ha have one degree, uh, aerospace engineering from, from Purdue. Um, I am from Indiana historically and, and uh, until recently just uh, popped over to Ohio. But um, I've been with the company about a year. I'm the director of business development for Shock Tech, so more sales side than, than engineering, um, but certainly... My, my background helps me a little bit. Um, so shock tech primarily does shock and vibration control for defense contractors, primes, government, um, generally in the naval kind of space. Um, but recently we've been venturing more into aerospace, um, missiles, uh, space and and now that uh, commercial space has taken off, Blue Origin, SpaceX, and, and folks like that, um, vibration control is a big concern for sensitive electronics for experiments um, going long distances and, and needing um, very precise measurement capabilities. So um, that's kind of where Shock Tech uh, starts, and uh, I guess let James uh, roll into why we're here today. Yeah, well, and before we get there, you know, Alex, I don't want you to feel bad. You know, you only have one major, but at least it's a good one because <laughs> I had a geography major. And uh, so, you know, I, I probably don't deserve to be in this conversation. So don't feel bad. You know, we got the PhD here. But uh, so it, it, it's kind of interesting because you talk about that. And I think a lot of people don't realize how much that, you know, the shock and the, the issue of vibrations can affect uh, things because we always get told, you know, at least in F-16s or in airplanes, like, Hey, these things have to be able to withstand the rigors of what you're putting them through. Uh, so that being said, uh, James, go ahead and kind of explain. So, so they have a product called reap, uh, and then I'll let James kind of dig, dig into it and kind of tell us exactly how it works, what it, what it looks like, try to build a picture for you. Yeah. So reap is the so it stands for a reusable energy abatement pad. Uh, when we talk about uh, aerial delivery, uh, most of the time um, the Air Force has to train for these, uh, for the, the air crew and the pilots. Um, and so they day in and day out just drop these bundles. And each of the bundles have a one-time use energy dissipation pad for it. Uh, we call it honeycomb. Um, it's just a cardboard piece that they put between the payload and the skidboard. Uh, when it hits the ground, it just uh, crushes it and it destroys it, and that's where you get the energy dissipation. Um, so we developed a reusable product for them to replace that for training purposes uh, in CDSs or container delivery systems. Um, and so that's, that's what we're looking at. So we did it through the SBIR program, through AFWorks. Um, we started in 2019. Um, got qualified to do operational testing at the end of last year in December. And that's what we've been doing from, uh, from this year's operational testing and then also selling to different uh, operations. Nice. And so uh, because I kind of struggled to, to imagine, and obviously I'd never, you know, the airdrops I did didn't, you know, they needed to slow down quick and uh, detonate and whatnot. Uh, but the in this case, we have... When I saw the picture, it reminded me of a purple mattress, if you will. You know, it's not purple, it's black, but it's it's that. Yeah. It's these, uh, I guess, silicone the word or rubber, you know, 
squares that you would create to create that honeycomb, but of a different material, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's made out of an elastomer that we have that we formulated in house, um, and uh, yeah, it's it's exactly right. We made it so it's modular, so you put it all together, you can disassemble it. The way that honey, uh, regular honeycomb is shipped right now is in about nine foot boxes, so nine foot by five feet, um, and then about maybe four or five feet tall. So it's very very large boxes. So those just take up a lot of space, especially when you're talking about shipping it over to Kadena or Okinawa, Japan, or, or anything overseas, that's just a lot of space that you could be putting other things towards. Um, and so ours really fits, the size of one CDS fits into like a paper box, you know, the, the boxes that paper come into, um, instead of a nine foot big long thing that takes up all the space. Yeah, and one thing that I, I originally kind of struggled to really grasp on exactly where it's going. So say we have like a, I don't know, a Humvee or some, some sort of like uh, ATV that is going to be dropped out of the back. Like, where is this going to live kind of in that pallet construction? Uh, just so people kind of understand where, what's being replaced and what part of the, uh, the drop is uh, absorbing the shock. Yeah, you usually have the bottom plate, which is the one that hits the ground. And then you have your payload, which uh, in the case of container delivery systems, it's some type of dummy weight. It's, you know, a metal cage or water, water barrels or something like that. Um, it could be, you could think of it as Humvee. And so in between that bottom plate that hits the ground and whatever your payload is, if it's water or Humvee, that's where your energy dissipation occurs. So right now for like Humvees, they have these stacks of honeycombs. So they stack them up to about four or five feet high um, in order to, to give it not, not only to provide the the energy dissipation, but also to, to make it so it's not in contact with that, that skidboard or the ground plate that, uh, or the plate that hits the ground. And you're saying they're putting four or five feet of this cardboard honeycomb. And then when it hits the ground, that all becomes like a half inch of honeycomb, uh, at the well, end. It, it, it's actually very interesting. It's, it doesn't really destroy most of it. And even, this project was started through um, AATC in the Special Warfare Division because they have the SRTV for their rescue squadrons for Guardian Angels. And sometimes, so it, it's supposed to compress enough to get the tires onto the board and then they can just drive it off. But there's so much engineering, like they put so much of it that it doesn't even do that. So it doesn't even compress enough to get the tires onto the ground or onto the board to drive it off. So a lot of times they'll have to push the, the vehicle off of these stacks of honeycomb. Um, and I think it's really, they do four or five feet because it needs to make up that gap from where the skidboard is or where the bottom, the one that hits the ground up to the vehicle. So we have, um, we initially proposed to design like structures. So that way it's like a telescopic st structure because you only really need maybe three inches or six inches of energy dissipation for that vehicle, but they use all four or five feet because that's how they construct it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, you know, it's funny that you always think that you're kind of in your, you're like the only one, you know, for a long time, they said the, the Viper reset for the F-16, like, Oh, turn it off and turn it back on. And then you talk to anybody in tech or anybody who does anything, they're like, yeah, just turn it off and turn it back on. Like, it's not like the F-16 was the only thing that that was the solution for. But I feel like in this case, the same thing where 
You know, it's like, hey, you don't want to land short, so just a little extra, little extra airspeed, and then you know, like the tech order is written with a little extra airspeed, and then the pilot flies it with a little extra airspeed, and then all of a sudden we're like, <laughs> you know, ten knots fast because everybody just adds a little bit more because it's like, hey, it can't hurt, and then we run planes off the end of runways, or we have to push vehicles off of their delivery systems because we put too much cardboard. So the uh, yeah. see, that's pretty cool. There's what would you say? I mean developing all of that where was kind of the the pinch points you know when you're like okay we're going to replace this with this polymer uh, or elastomer rather where did you kind of struggle to kind of develop that and create something that could do what you were attempting to because i assume it's not just it came out of the box perfect yeah we went through quite a few iterations so the the first one was once we got feedback from the customer this product wasn't initially part of our phase one, but during the phase one discovery of what do the end users want, what are they looking for, this product sort of developed out of that, those conversations. And it did happen to be coincide with, with what our main focus was for the SBIR, but it was nice that this one was like, yeah, we can, we can do this and it, and it aligns here um, for what they're looking for. Um, so after we got the customer feedback, we did uh, initially, we looked at three different designs um, and seeing which one gave us balance between performance, weight, um, any of the, the other requirements. Um, and then from there, we took this modular one because we saw the benefits, not just of what the end user was talking about, but these other benefits of being able to ship it in a smaller package size, um, saving on that cost for shipping costs uh, to store it. A lot of times these bases will have a whole um, trailer or, or some type of container. You know, you, you can think of it as sort of like a, just a storage unit for these honeycomb. And so now they can get rid of that and they can put that space towards something else. Um, so it just added so many more benefits than the other designs that we were looking at. Um, I think the biggest thing that was brought up, especially early on, was this qualification is that we had no idea that even though it's aerial delivery and it's, you know, the U.S. Air Force does a lot of it, is that once once the container or once the payload goes outside of the aircraft, it's considered now Army domain. So Army has all the qualifications, all the regulations that the Army does on those. And so even though we were working with the Air Force, we still needed to go through the Army and say, okay, well, what is the qualifications? What is the cert certifications for that? Um, and being able to not just look at it, but also find a way around it, I guess, is, is the way that we did it, is that right now, REAP is very limited in scope. So it's only applied for training purposes with CDSs through the Air Force. Um, and that was because the qualifications that the Army has was so tailored to the honeycomb that it required it to be packaged in like a nine-foot box, which <laughs> takes away one complete aspect of it. So we knew we weren't going to make the qualifications that the army wanted for the, or at least what they have for the honeycomb. Um, and so we found this uh, way around to do a UAT unilateral airdrop training authorization uh, through the air force. And so, um, yeah, and that was mainly through master sergeant Holsenbeck from Fort Lee. He went out, saw the drops, and then he came up with the UAT and that's how we've been able to at least get the Air Force people and the end users to be able to operationally drop it. 
and then once they operationally drop it, we can gather that feedback so that way we're not, you know, waiting on the army to do a full qualification and certification of the product. Yeah, it's very army of them. I, uh, you know, I've had an opportunity to, uh, well, I don't want to call it an opportunity. I've interacted <laughs> with the army, uh, <laughs> where, uh, so Holloman Air Force Base was my last base and, uh, the airspace, which is actually very good in the continent, continental United States, um, but the army owns it and they do a ton of testing in there. And the funny thing is, is working with the army, but it's all army people. So they don't do air stuff very much. Uh, so they say, you know, they'll, they'll have a restriction for like 45 minutes in the morning and then 45 minutes in the afternoon, but they just make the restriction for the whole day. Like you can't fly there. You're like, why not? And they're like, oh, it's easier this way. And it's like, for who is it easier for? Like, so it's, yeah, it's, uh, you know, my, I, I can say that stuff because my uncle's in the army reserve. So it's cool. You know, I can get away with it. But Alex, did you want to add something? I thought you might be. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just a couple of things. I mean, the, the, the classic, like writing the specification around the thing that you're using today. So the, the army and the air force are using the cardboard honeycomb. And so everything that they've ever written on how to use it is just for that instead of taking a step up and, and writing a true specification where the, the load, you know, dissipation of energy must be at this rate or the thickness of something you're going to pack depending on the payload needs to be X, right? And they just wrote it all for honeycomb, which is part of the, part of the trouble we're, we're running up against. Now, over time, we can probably change that, right? With time and with um, some some folks who will help us do that. Um, but initially, it makes it incredibly difficult to make a viable product for the DoD, just like bar none, right? Yeah. Um, but I did want to add one thing, James. Uh, you mentioned storage. You mentioned shipping. What other specific requirements were there when we were doing the phase one for this solution? I know there were a few more. Uh, yeah, there was, there was quite a few that, that they had. Um, in terms of the end users, really, they wanted something that was reusable, something that they could bring the CDS bundle back and just pretty much turn it right side up, fill it back with water, put a new parachute on, and put it back onto one of their aircraft. Um, and that was that was the main one. They didn't really care too much about some of these others. Um, we did try to make the design as similar to Honeycomb as possible, so that way there's less barrier for them to accept it into the community. Um, but I, I think that was that was the primary one. They didn't even care about weight. You know, they they were like, if you make it reusable, we don't really care about weight. They a lot of shops will have cranes to lift them up and transport them and um, you know they they already deal with that aspect of things a lot of times uh, so so there really wasn't too many requirements from the end user um, but we put a lot of requirements on ourselves to make sure that we had that path to go into the market right yeah the uh, one question I had and I don't know if you guys have done all this or how much you can get into it but uh, so for the kind of the absorption of the energy absorption and that shock absorption. I mean, are you actually doing like uh, testing on how much you, the uh, reap is actually slowing down the thing and how it compares to the uh, honeycomb? 
Yeah, we've done, uh, in our phase two, we did laboratory tests. So we have a, we developed a drop tower, we built it, um, and then we compared one square foot of paper honeycomb to one square foot of REAP. And so we saw about comparable performances. REAP does give a little bit more of a rebound. Um, and so, uh, but again, the, the end users, they don't really care about. So it's, so it jumps up a little bit higher, you know. Um, we are doing operational. We did operational starting last, uh, last November was the one to do qualification to get the UAT. Um, and then we did operations uh, with Master Sergeant Strout at um, Space, uh, Patrick Space Force Base. Um, and then that one, we did a direct comparison between what does REAP do and what does Honeycomb do. Uh, that one was interesting because there was uh, some type of cut in the gore for the parachute. So the REAP bundle came down faster, and so it hit the ground faster. It hit the ground at like an odd angle, but it dissipated more than what the honeycomb did. So the honeycomb dissipated, I think it was somewhere around 70 or 75%. And then for the REAP, we were looking, uh, we dissipated about 85 um, and then we also looked at rebound, how much how much time there was in the air after the first impact to the second. And then we saw about a 20% improvement for uh, rebound energy, uh, even with that. Um, so, so we do see a, a comparable performance, but also a little bit, a little bit of a performance gain. Okay, nice. The uh, one question I always have is, uh, so working with end users, uh, how has that been? Have you had a good experience, a lot of input, a lot of feedback? Because uh, obviously every end user, it's their secondary, maybe even their third job. Uh, so have you had a lot of kind of uh, data flow back and forth and, and a lot of good experiences with that? Yeah, overall, it's been really positive. Um, during the phase one, we went and visited about a handful of bases. Uh, we even met with a few Marines and Army folks when we were out in Japan. So we, we traveled all the way up to Japan and met them out there. Um, and overall, the, you know, it's, it's been awesome working with the Air Force personnel that we have. Anytime we want to come out and testing, we say, hey, can we come out and test? And they're all willing to come out and, and have us on their base and, and do any type of testing. Um, and we, again, we have direct contact with, um, uh, with Fort Lee, with through Holsenbeck to make sure that any type of conflicts or any any type of questions that they have about okay, is this actually authorized? Then we're able to have that line of communication to say, yeah, we're able to add sensors onto it on the pallets and do this or that. Or if we want them to do different rigging, um, then he's always a phone call away that he'll pick up and and answer any questions that they have. So nice. Well, that's good. And I would, yeah. I would just add, um, you know, even though this is authorized for training, um, the folks that are using it are dropping 10, 10 times a week. Is that, is that fair, James? Uh, so you, it depends on the base. So for example, Kadena has a maximum CDSs that they can drop, which is 10. Um, for some something like Little Rock Air Force Base, which is one of the larger ones, they're doing somewhere probably around 50 to 75 a week. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be dropping the same bundle over and over. A lot of times, they'll have the inspector come once a week. So at the beginning of the week on Monday, they'll inspect all the bundles for the week, and then they'll drop those and then inspect for the next week on the next on the following Monday. So 
so so where where I'm going though is is you know if they're using traditional honeycomb material and it's all one time use, it's a ton of garbage or a ton of recycling, however you want to look at it. But mm-hmm. but with our uh, you know reusable option, they could re rig and, and roll out the next day or you know a day removed or or whatever. Um, and so we've been able to be a part of a, a bunch of drops and get a ton of data back from the actual end users, which has, has been really great. Yeah, that's good. Well, and I think uh, with the, where'd you guys go in Japan? Uh, Kadena. Like Kadena. Okay. How'd you like uh, Okinawa? Was it pretty cool? Yeah, it was, it was a little blast from the past. You know, it seems like yeah. a lot of the companies that went out of business in the States are still open there. And yeah. <laughs> Just swung swung by uh, Blockbuster stuff like that. The uh, yeah. yeah, I was my first assignment in the uh, combat air force was up in northern Japan, uh, and it was it was a good time. I I enjoyed it. It was definitely a cool culture up there, and you know it's just it's just different. It seemed like a much smaller, just a, a smaller bubble that you live your life in when you were overseas. So that's cool. Yeah. I, I, neither of you guys have any military experience, right? Yeah, so how was it checking out a military base for the first time? I've been on uh, several of them. My dad was in the Air okay. Force, um, and oh, so nice. I've been on quite a few throughout the years. And then my ex-wife was Army, so yeah. Oh, okay. So you a lot of exposure then. What about you, Alex? <laughs> yeah. So I uh, I somehow missed that trip to Japan. I don't know if I was oh. on board yet. <laughs> I would have I would have liked to go. Um, but I, I've been on a few bases in my in my former life uh, doing jet engine work for for 3M. So um, always good experiences. You know the the folks there are always very knowledgeable and and in terms of like customers who are willing to give you any kind of data, all the military folks I've worked with have been fantastic. <laughs> Where yeah, well, you know uh, you know private company customers generally kind of hoard their their things and, and maybe don't want to share everything, but if the government's paying, it's all fair game. Yeah. One, well, a lot of times the military doesn't share data because they don't know how, or they don't know where it's stored. You know, it's not that they don't want to, it's just, they, they're like, who knows how that, how to access that. The, uh, was it, uh, solid, solid, uh, rocket motors or what were you, or what, what were you working on motors for 3M? Um, so, so for 3M, I, I was part of their, um, adhesives and surface protection group for the aerospace group. And so we did jet engines. So Pratt, G, Rolls-Royce, those guys. Yeah. So yeah, rotary, um, turbojet type. So the uh, so the F-16, uh, the U.S. one at least, uh, the ones I guess, uh, has four different motor options. So uh, I know which one's my favorite, but if you've worked with the Pratts and the GE, do you know at, from your side of the house, do you have a preferred motor? So and it's, it's, it's probably just from my sheer experience and, and working with it was the, the motor for the F-35. So that's the, I think it's the F-135 motor from Pratt & Whitney. It is yeah. a, a beautiful piece of machinery. Um, and so I, I got to see that close up in assembly in, uh, in Hartford there where it was being, being put together. It was incredible. So uh, yeah. I obviously haven't gotten to ride one yet. But uh, someday. Yeah, you got to work on that. You got to start making stuff for fighter pilots and I'll take you up in the jet. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty awesome. So with, with shock tech, obviously you guys are doing stuff all over the place. So what is, if you were kind of 
boil down kind of the most basic form of, hey, this vibration absorption or any of that, like, what are you looking at when someone says like, hey, we need to protect these parts? Like, how do you kind of walk through that process of how we're going to protect them? So I'll speak from my side, James, and then I'll let you take the take the red side. Um, in general, when we've got customers looking for a solution, so generally they know they have a problem, um, they have some understanding of what that problem is, and then potentially how they might want to approach it. So I'll give an example here. Um, the Navy's got a server rack that goes in one of their boats doesn't matter what boat, right? So it's essentially the size of a file cabinet, if you will, and it's full of electronics. Well, all those electronics have uh, maximum loads that they can sustain and still operate. And the there's a couple different testing specifications. Uh, I think they both fall under 901. There's a D and an E uh, is the mil spec testing. And so they'll come to us and say, hey, this is our system. It weighs a thousand kilograms we're going to be subject to 901E barge testing. We know what the input of that shock and vibration is going to be. And so based on the parameters of that test, we can design a system to isolate that. So um, either um, energy absorption mounting points from the deck to the system, or um, maybe an enclosure that mounts that thing in, in three dimensions. And so basically when in the event that a, a boat is hit with a bomb or, or a missile or whatever, a, sh a shock input to the system won't damage the electronics. And, and I think the whole background of, of, of this company and, and really where we've been successful is from 2001, I think the USS Cole was, was bombed. And I believe the, the, the boat sat dead in the water for a few days. And so back up, the, the government said, we don't, never want this to happen again. We want all of the systems on a boat to be um, hardened to this standard. And so all, if you think about all systems, air compressors, fuel pumps, um, any kind of hydraulics, you know, if you've got an aircraft carrier, you know, bringing jets up, they all have to manage this um, very specific shock input. And so that's really where we work well. Um, I know that's, that's a lot of information, but... Um, that would be potentially how we approach a problem. Yeah, cool. James, uh, you anything to add uh, to that? Yeah, the, the R&D department's a little bit different where, um, you know, a lot of times they might not know what their thing is. For example, you know, NASA says, we want you to develop this isolator. But, you know, they don't know what size it is and they just want the best performance that they have, right? They're like, this is the one requirement we really care about and then that's it. Um, so a lot of times we might be dealing with unknowns or like you said, you know, the, the Air Force people might know that there, there might be data out there, but they may not know where it's at. And so coming up with estimates on, on some of the things that we might need to know to develop a solution. Um, I think the, the other thing is a lot of times these are retrofit, like, you know, a lot of times people don't have vibration and control, uh, vibration control and shock mitigation in their mind when they're building a system. Um, and so they'll start testing and then realize that they have a problem. So an example is like the some of the helicopters that have the Gatling guns. When they had the Gatling guns going off, it would 
trip a circuit breaker and then it would stop the gun. Um, and it was all just a vibration and control. And, you know, one of the first comments is, well, if you redesign the helicopter, we can make this perfect for you. But no, they're not going <laughs> to redesign the helicopter. So you have to put in and you have to work with what they have, which sometimes it's it's difficult, right? Like if if you think of these things before you start the design, you can plan for them. But if you're trying to put something in, you have, you know, height and size and weight restrictions. Um, but at least from the red department, um, we deal with things that are very abstract. So a lot of times we'll look at SBIR topics and they'll say, for example, we're, we have an army that's starting up in the next week where they're looking at suspension improvements. So they say, we just need suspension improvements for the ambulance Humvee that we have. Um, and then you can propose whatever you want as long as you're improving the suspension. So. Well, it's cool. Well, it's, it's funny that you gave that as an example, uh, because again, the F-16, just going back to that one, there's this odd thing that happens in a lot of the F-16s and no one, at least none of the pilots know why, uh, where the gun, so the, uh, Gatling gun, you know, it's a six barrel, um, like, uh, you know, hundred rounds per second, uh, 20 millimeter cannon that you're, uh, you shoot. And then every once in a while, your radio just doesn't work. And I mean, it, it definitely likes, you know, shakes your feelings out uh, when you shoot it. Kind of your whole vision and everything goes blurry as you're shooting. And you're like, that was awesome. And then you climb up and you, you know, you don't hear anybody say anything. And you're like, ah, oh, that's weird. I feel like, but if you just enter a new frequency and then re-enter your old frequency, everything works. And you're like, mm. okay, well, sure. Then we may, yeah. maybe the F-16 needs a little shock absorption or something. Uh, yeah. That thing... The, uh, so with that and kind of what you talked about was, uh, the end users, you know, there's so many times where I feel like, and kind of with your Cibber one, where it was like, Hey, we, we got hired to do this, but then we really realized that they actually needed that. I feel like there's so much of that out there. And, and does that happen with a lot of people, you know, not just DOD people, just kind of all customers, you kind of realize there's problem sets that they didn't even realize were problems until they started talking to pros? 100%. Yeah. Um, I, I could I could give you some examples in, in the private sector, but um, shock and vibration is kind of a niche thing. Um, yeah. and, there, and there are absolutely folks out there working for big primes who know what they're talking about. They know what they need. And they'll come to us with a, a, a half-baked design and say, hey, I need you to build this. And we absolutely do that. But for the most part, it's uh, here's my system. Here's the problems I'm seeing. We have no idea, you know, or we know there's going to be a problem. Can you help us fix it? Yeah. The uh, one random question, and this probably, it's probably not even a worthwhile question, but it's just on my mind. Uh, so when you're thinking of uh, these kind of shock absorptions, so one massive input of energy versus like a lot of small inputs of energy uh, is that a big difference when you're looking at shock absorption and how you're going to withstand these things? So like a slight wing flap on an aircraft always through flight versus like massive impacts from something. Uh, is that a big difference for the two, uh, solutions? Yeah. I mean, you have to take both into consideration. So even, uh, even though you might have to worry about shock, you still have to worry about the vibrations, right? And 
so some of the some of the ideas is like if you vibrate a, a wing at a certain frequency, you can unscrew the f uh, fasteners, and if it's you vibrate at a different frequency, you can screw them in, right? And so <laughs> depending on those vibrations, so whenever you're talking about retrofitting, you also need to look at not only making sure that you you fix whatever it is that your objective is, but you're also not putting it into a worst case scenario for like vibration, right? So you yeah. can mitigate shock, but then if you're worse for vibration, it might not be good for them. So yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, what are and there's, the, oh, sorry, just, just one more thing oh, yeah. to add that, that, uh, it, it happens quite a bit in the, in the shock space where you get a massive input. And if you don't tune your isolators correctly, you can actually get amplification of the input instead of mitigation. Um, that's, it's all, you know, we get in the weeds on frequencies and, and how that all works, but it's, it's all math. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah. The, uh, my son's good at math. I am uh, less so, but the, yeah, well, you know, when you go to, when you go to pilot training, obviously they get like aero majors and all these big brains and they have like a geography major sitting there and they're talking about like dynamically unstable. And, and I'm like, Ooh, you know, when are we going to start flying airplanes guys? Cause this yeah. is where's the throttle problem. and where do I point the nose? Right? Exactly. Like it's, it's easy, you know, fly higher, fly lower. But the, yeah, once we got into like the basics of aerodynamics, I was like, you lost me. But luckily that was only like an hour long class. So it, it, it didn't hinder me. Uh, so what would you say kind of, in the super space, because you guys are pretty much kind of uh, commercial rollout, right? So you guys are effectively under a Cyber 3-esque uh, now. So what's what's kind of the the future? You know, where are you guys going? What are you looking to do next uh, with the REAP? And then kind of how's that rollout look, at least from where you guys are standing? Yeah, we are in the, in the phase three. And uh, we've gotten several phase three contracts through different military bases. I was just updating the, the ones that came in the last week. You know, it's the end of year funding. So everybody's yeah. trying to get like er, everything bought and purchased under FY22. So, um, but really we're looking at the feedback from the end users. We want to make sure that this is like a long-term product for them to use and not a short-term. Um, so we're getting feedback on whether they want a different color or if they want some type of design changes. Um, they want something where they can start tying pieces together. So we're going to be doing some design changes to do that, where you can connect the different modules that we have with it. Um, and then we'll do like a final design of, okay, this is what they really want, um, probably early next year. And then we are also working with some of the um, test quadrants out in Nellis Air Force Base. Um, that does some of the Guardian Angel units outfitting them. And so they want to use REAP for some operational uses. So they want to take it beyond the training and into the operational space. And again, it's right now it's only limited to CDSs because that's what the US UAT calls for. Um, but more than likely, it's going to start branching out to different training loads. And then again, if, if we can get development with the with that test squadron out in, in Nellis, then it'll go into the operational side of things. And and one more thing to add on that side is, you know, I think down the road, as this becomes commercially viable, there can absolutely be iterations of, you know, something that dissipates more energy or um, is a little bit thinner, a little bit lighter, or, or however the end user needs that to be. 
but specifically looking at other spaces, um, key in my mind is the humanitarian aid side. So Red Cross or, or Red Crescent, you know, they're dropping stuff out of out of planes all the time. Now the military is probably involved there somehow doing that, but um, there's there's nothing that says this can't be used for that either. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I mean, because it seems like there's a lot of versatility in, in different use cases that you haven't already explored. Uh, so hopefully kind of people reach out and do that. Uh, what, what would you say one of the other programs that you guys are working on, you know, one of the other cool ones that's uh, out there that you're excited to talk about? Um, the one that's really big on our tray is the NASA project. So we're developing an isolator for NASA and um, specifically for optical communication devices. Uh, so you have these satellites that typically use RF, so radio frequency, uh, to transmit communication, um, but they're trying to switch over to optical. And they've been, they've been doing this in, in, in this process for 20, 30 years to, to go over to optical, which is fairly easy, or I guess maybe not easy. It's fairly straightforward. Uh, when you're close to the Earth and you're and you're beaming something, you know, that's one of the satellites down to a ground station. But when you're talking about um, beaming something from, let's say, Jupiter and all the way back to the Earth, now that becomes a much bigger problem because any slight deviation that you might have with the uh, line of sight, you might miss Earth completely. Um, and so that's what we're looking at is, is looking to make sure that when they point at Earth, that it stays on Earth and it doesn't bounce around. And so this is, that's what's called jitter on a satellite. Yeah. And so we're reducing the jitter. The, the hardest part with that one is our technical monitor for NASA really wants us to get to about 100 millihertz for the natural frequency, which is pretty much unheard of. You know, like if you have 5 hertz or 7 hertz, that's probably the lowest that most people go, and they want us to get all the way down to 0.1 hertz. You know, if you were going to give someone, because uh, again, caveman out here, and there's probably some in the audience, <laughs> if you were going to give like a relationship of like how much lower that would be, what would that seem like? You know, like the sun to the earth or something like that. Like um, I'm saying, size wise, like from five hertz to a hundred millihertz. Well, and it's a, it's a logarithmic scale. So it's, it's, it's like 10 X or it's, it's massive change. It's going from like, sorry, James, I, I, I want to add my two cents. You tell me if I'm wrong. Oh, go ahead. Um, yeah. So like in terms of isolation, you can think of things like that are stiff or things that are soft. So um, something that would be a stiff isolator would be like an engine mount on your car. The payload is really heavy and the vibrations are, are pretty tight. And so it has to be hard really to, to isolate that vibration where like your memory phone mattress would be something soft that would, that would isolate, um, you know, vibrations and you're jumping on it. Right. So a, a soft mattress would be, uh, uh, high frequency isolator, right? James low frequency, low, low, fre sorry, mix that up. So, so something's hard would be high frequency. Something soft would be low frequency. And that, that difference there is probably the change between, you know, the seven hertz to the, the middle hertz that we're, we're trying to achieve. Yeah. So it, it's, 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 a, it's a massive gap. Yeah. It's just, um, you know, when you're going to something that you're already at the bottom limit and you're reaching that, like physically it's hard to do, you know, and, and so there is like a lower limit that, that you can't get to. And, 
So coming up with those different things that you can play with either the geometry, the material, the whatever it is, you know, is, is always difficult. So even if, even if we were going from, let's say one Hertz down to 0.1 Hertz, that's like a huge difference already, you know, yeah. um, even though it might not seem that much. Well, it's, and, it's, and then to add, you know, it's got to survive launch. So you got to get it to space first. And then you got all the temperature swings, right? So it's, you know, 20 degrees Celsius on, on the surface. It's negative 100 degrees Celsius in space. Like that temperature swing changes everything. Um, and then add, you know, how long does it take to get to Saturn? Five years, yeah. 10 years? You know, it has to live that long and then still operate. So it, really difficult problems to solve. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're working on them and not me because I don't think we'd get there. The, uh, the, it's funny though, you know, you talk about the jitter and we even talk about that, you know, using a targeting pod to employ, uh, weapons and stuff using a laser, you know, creating, uh, like a high quality GPS coordinates from an airplane. We take that into account, even, even that short distance relatively, we're worried about our jitter and our, you know, our graze angle relative and our, our laser spot size and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I can only imagine when, when I'm trying to be particular, uh, it's, it's not even in the same ballpark as that kind of need to be particular. Um, well, that's pretty awesome. Well, the, uh, unless you have anything else, I'll, uh, I'll let you guys kind of, uh, let people know how to get in contact with you. So you can, uh, you can visit our website, shoptech.com. Um, if you got questions or you want to reach out, you got a problem that you, you want to have us look at, there's a, you know, contact us that comes straight to me and, uh, and a couple other folks in our company and we'll, we'll be in touch. Uh, but James, you got, you got another option. Uh, you can email me. Uh, my email is jrawl at swg-red.com. Um, and that will get me directly, and then we can, you know, connect that way. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks for being here, guys. I appreciate it. And then uh, everybody out there, uh, you can contact contact us at uh, info at kodiakshack.com. Check out our website, kodiakshack.com. And then we have a uh, – we're getting some sponsors nowadays, so if you want to sponsor an episode, get your name out there. If you can't be on the show, uh, then contact us at info at kodiakshack.com. Donations are always welcome. And then uh, for all the uh, prior military guys or anybody that could be a subject matter expert, we're getting a lot of requests from companies uh, to put them in contact with people who may be smart in some areas. Uh, so shoot us an email. Let us know if you're interested in, uh, in helping uh, kind of be an end user or provide feedback uh, to all these wonderful companies. Uh, but thanks for listening. And, uh, and guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Vader. Appreciate Thank it. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.